everybody. Welcome to the May 19th, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on a new law addressing mental health and the criminal justice system. Signed by Governor Hickenlooper on Thursday, this legislation would make it illegal to incarcerate someone brought in on mental health holds. The new law also provides $9.5 million of funding for mental health workers to assist law enforcement officers when dealing with the public. Patty Calhoun from Westward, this feels like a law that probably should have been on the books already. This is, it, it, I'm, I'm glad it passed and then we, we see a signature from the governor, but I was astonished to see that this wasn't already considered law. What was your reaction to the big signing this week? About time is the reaction. Since the mental health budget has been cut and cut and cut and the ment people who need mental health services have been mainstreamed, they're winding up using the jails as a babysitting spot, which is not a good idea. These people need help. When you hear the news, like from New York yesterday, where someone, we don't need to worry about terrorists so much as we need to worry about our own homegrown, mentally ill people who really, really need help and they need to be, get it sooner. Michael Fields from Americans for Prosperity joins us. Uh, Michael, were you surprised it took this long to see the law get on the books? Uh, a little bit, but I also think you know there's been a resources problem with this, and this money uh, will address that somewhat, but I don't think really fixes the whole uh, problem. I think you know it's really it's too early to do a victory lap on this issue in general because hospitals still have to deal with this, ER rooms still have to deal with it, um, and so I think more resources have to go to prevention, have to go to how to deal with this in general because there aren't a lot of good options, especially in rural areas. And Celia from the Denver Business Journal, did this happen because of pot money? There was finally some money there to do something with? It did, but, I mean, it was a tough situation. This is one of those no-duh laws that you think about, like, oh, we don't want to lock up the mentally ill. But at the same point, I mean, it, the real hold on this has been rural sheriff's offices who are saying, I've got to take them to the nearest mental health center, which could be two, three hours away from where I live, and, and expend, you know, my limited resources to get them there. The money, the pot money is going to help, especially with the state creating kind of a roving two-person team to help transport some of these individuals. But Hinsdale County is still a long way away, and so there's still going to be resources that are put out of place uh, for this. Mike Sacconi from the uh, Keystone Policy Center joins us, rounds up the panel. Uh, do you think this will kick off more uh, legislative action on this issue since it's getting a pretty warm reception so far? Absolutely. I think uh, uh, this is great. It'll be a key thing for the legislature. We'll be finding additional funding or at least prioritizing funding to build on this progress. Colorado was an outlier in this regard of allowing the jailing of folks with mental health holds. Let's hope that uh, the legislature keeps building on this progress. Let's get to it. In a legal battle over oil and gas protections, Governor John Hickenlooper and Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman are at odds. Governor Hickenlooper ordered state regulators not to find a court ruling addressing the public's safety and health. In response, Attorney General Kaufman filed an appeal to the Colorado Supreme Court asking for a deeper look into the initial ruling. Patty, what do we make to this? Is this a significant uh, separation between where Governor Hickenlooper is and Attorney General Kaufman, or are we making too much of it? Well, I think given what's going on in Washington, D.C. right now, we kind of like seeing independence, even if it's wrong-headed independence, from the AG's office. I think Hickenlooper made the right call not to appeal, but she read it differently. In some ways, it's kind of delicious to think about this case going to the Supreme Court, the Colorado Supreme Court, because it started as a children's crusade. Think about the kind of lesson they are really getting in government, in the law, and in the power that individuals have. So... If and when it makes it to the Colorado Supreme Court, I'm going to hope all those kid plaintiffs are in the front row listening to what happens. 
Michael, what do you think about the decision of uh, Attorney General Kaufman going ahead and appealing this to the Supreme Court, which, you know, we never know how the Supreme Court's going to go, but if we, if we look at the past decisions, probably it's not going to go her way. Well, I think it has to do with clarity, and I think when you look at it, to your point, I think Governor Hickenlooper thinks that he is on the same page with the Attorney General in general because the standard has already been balancing, you know, property rights versus, um, you know, the safety in the environment. Um, but the people, you know, the teenagers that you're talking about don't think that this, you know, came out the, or came out in the way that they wanted it to. And so I think that there, there is a, a good approach to take this to make sure that it's clear um, that that balancing test is still in place where, we, of course, we are looking at safety in the environment, and we should be. Um, but we also have to balance that with oil and gas production, which is huge in our state, which is a big part of the economy. And so I think the Supreme Court should weigh in, and I think the Attorney General has every right to, to bring this case. Ed, help us evaluate the gravity of the situation, because I think it's easy to look at headlines and say, Kaufman against Hickenlooper and decides to go against his decision. That could be a really big deal, or it could be just how government works. You're a guy in Capitol Hill. You've been covering government for a long time. How do you perceive what's going on right now? Well, I mean, let, let's be sure of one thing. The Attorney General's office uh, represents various agencies of the state. That's one of her duties. And one of those agencies of the state is the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, which on May 1st voted unanimously to try to appeal this decision. It's actually, in a lot of ways, her duty to follow that. And, and she would be offline if she decided oh, I know you want to do this as my client, but guess what? We're not going to do this. Um, that puts her in clash with the governor. Um, but I don't think this is a huge clash. Let's remember, the governor is not out here saying, you know, what, what Kaufman is doing is, is looking to, you know, harm the public health. What the governor is saying is that he believes uh, the way the court has interpreted state law is no different than the way that COGCC interprets state law right now, that it already balances uh, public health uh, with the needs of the industry. Uh, uh, Kaufman sees it a different way. She sees that ruling as potentially tipping the scale against oil and gas companies, against property rights, and, and going against it. So I don't think this is some big breakdown of the executive branches here. This is Hickenlooper and Kaufman having a disagreement over what a court ruling means and over what her duties are. And I think, you know, in, in her credit, she is asking for clarity. And that is exactly what's going to come out of this for the Supreme Court is clarity. Uh, and we probably won't see a knockdown drag out between them because of that. Mike, to Ed's point, is this more about the commission really at odds with Governor Hickenlooper and, and Attorney General Kaufman doing her job? I agree with Ed. Uh, the AG's office is clear uh, in its duties to defend its clients and represent them. Uh, so AG Kaufman is within her, the authority of her office. I also want to point out, too, this is underscoring uh, one thing for me politically, that uh, it's only a plus for Cynthia when she disagrees with the governor. Uh, she's headed into re-election. There's a lot of folks hoping to take her on next year. And let's face the facts. John Hickenlooper is a lame duck governor. Cynthia understands that, and she's ready to take the fight to him. I like the political angle there, Mike. Good. In a bipartisan effort, U.S. Representatives Diana DeGette and Mike Hoffman introduced a bill to the U.S. House that would protect Colorado's marijuana operations. If ultimately passed, the Respect States and Citizens' Rights Act of 2017 would protect both medical and retail marijuana growers from being raided or sued by Congress over its legality. Michael, seeing something uh, like this bipartisan cooperation, especially with Diana DeGette and Mike Kaufman, I don't know if this was more about marijuana in Colorado or more about bipartisan cooperation a year before 2018's elections. How do you read it? 
Well, I think one thing is for sure that the Kaufmans are dominating the news this week. <laughs> yes, uh, they but, are. <laughs> but I think the second thing, I think it could be a little bit of both, but you've seen this pushback, especially with the Trump administration coming in and really being unclear what their stance is going to be on marijuana in Colorado and in other states to say, you know what, as a bipartisan rule uh, in Colorado, we're going to push back against this. We're going to, uh, you know, make a, make a statement. And I think there's no doubt this isn't going to pass Congress. It wouldn't get you know, signed into law. But I think it's more of a, of a message uh, to the administration. And, and Governor Hickenlooper had that meeting with, with Attorney General Sessions. He seemed to think that, you know, they were in, on pretty good terms coming out of that. Um, nothing for sure, but I think, you know, this is kind of piling onto that and say, hey, you know, as a representative, bipartisan, uh, we have this view that we have this state right in order to do this, and the federal government shouldn't be pushing back against it. Ed, I agree with uh, Michael that we're, this is a long shot, another kind of a snowball's chance to get to uh, President Trump's desk. But you have 33 states with some sort of form of legalized marijuana. Uh, that's a vast majority from 25 uh, to, uh, to tilt it state-wise. But it also could drive enough inertia where it would get some attention. I don't think this means it passes or gets to say anything like that. But that inertia might have some effect. Do you think that happens, or is this simply something that we notice here in Colorado because of our players, and it goes away? Well, you know, it, uh, this is just part of a push in Congress right now. I mean, we're focused on this bill, but don't forget, Ed Perlmutter is back again trying to run a bill allowing uh, banks to handle uh, marijuana money in states where it's legal, because they currently cannot do so. Uh, even uh, Bennett and Gardner are working on something to kind of basically protect states' rights. And I think this has got to come to a head at some point. I've talked about this before. One of the worst things the Obama administration did was it basically decided as a policy to turn a blind eye to states who were doing this, saying, yes, this may clash with federal law, but we're not going to go after them. Well, guess what? That doesn't solve the legal question here at all. All that did was put this off to another president, who Trump could come in right now and say, look, I'm sorry, you're breaking federal law by allowing marijuana. We're going to crack down on you. Now, the thing that's stopping him is what you mentioned, the majority of states doing this. But at some point, there's got to be a decision made by Congress or by the president on where this stands and whether or not we, the federal government will recognize the legality of these operations or whether or not it's going to crack down on them. Right now, it just continues in this, oh, I'll look the other way and pretend this isn't happening. And that's never going to lead to anything. I think the more bills that come out, the more it will force uh, this administration to come up with a policy on it. And I think this is something we will see uh, a decision come out on in the next couple of years, if not sooner. Mike, let's go to the politics side. We had a great point last time, so let's stay there. You have Mike Kaufman working on a bipartisan bill with Diana DeGette. That, in, a, uh, in his old days, the way CD6 was drawn up, may not have uh, swung too well. Now, the way CD6 is drawn up, it, it, I think, would actually sell pretty well. It may be not the only consideration there, but it, should it be a major consideration in how he's handling things? You know, uh, he represents a swing district now. Uh, partnering with Diana DeGette's a good idea uh, if you want to uh, come across as bipartisan. I mean, let's be honest, though. All these bills on marijuana are posturing. It takes two to tango. If the president's not going to sign it into law, it might as well not actually happen. The place I'll be watching to see uh, uh, for more clear smoke signals from the Trump administration will be during the U.S. attorney confirmation hearings once Trump nominates somebody for the District of Colorado. That will be where the Senate can hold somebody up or at least nail that person down on a commitment to whether enforce or not enforce uh, federal marijuana laws or whether or not they'll assert federal supremacy. 
Patty, what do you think about the efforts from Colorado's congressional delegation on the pot issue? I mean, we, we, now we've seen it from a uh, bipartisan effort on a couple of different issues. It sounds like it would be a very important issue for Colorado. Are they doing it the right way? Well, they're doing something, which is good. Even if you may not ever get it through Congress, you may not, much less to Trump's desk, you still need to make the effort. The Perlmutter pushing for the banking is really important. Jared Polis is on the Congressional Cannabis Caucus and pushing. Now for these two to join in just strengthens Colorado's position. Let's remember that this was a $1.37 billion industry last year in Colorado. And on the latest Quinnipiac poll, 90% of Americans said they favor medical marijuana of some kind and access to it. So at the very least, the federal government has got to come clean with a clear rule for that. When 90% of Americans want access to this kind of medicine, that's important. After Judge Carlos Samor ordered the early release of a, from a Cuban immigrant's 98-year sentence, Rene Lima Marin was let go but later detained by immigration and custom enforcement agents. In 2000, Marin was convicted of kidnapping, burglary, and robbery, sentence, but was erroneously released on parole in 2008. Once authorities caught wind of the mistake, he was returned to prison in 2014, which was most recently addressed by Judge Samor. Ed, there are a whole lot of details here, some honest-to-goodness drama and different policy things here. Help us unpack it. What do we need to know? Uh, what we need to know is this is a case that shows the law, as much as it is about absolutes, cannot be run in terms of absolutes. This is a person, Jose Lima Marin, who uh, should have still been in jail, who was let out erroneously, and who proved in being let out erroneously that there are some people that can be rehabilitated. Uh, what some more took into his account was not saying, hey, guess what? You should still be in jail under the law. What he said was, you have paid back your debt to society. You've lived as an honorable citizen, and we're going to let you out. Okay, so there's the first thing we know, is that's not an absolute. Um, the second absolute, though, is still yet to be known. Uh, he's picked up by ICE. He came to this country as a one-year-old from Cuba. Um, regardless of where you stand on the immigration issue, this has a couple of, of interesting factors in it. One, uh, he didn't jump the border on his own way. He, he came over with his parents. Secondly, he didn't come from Mexico or another Latin American country where people are concerned about uh, border jumpers. He came from Cuba, escaping a repressive, brutal dictatorship of the insane Fidel Castro. I mean, these are people that, that the country essentially has welcomed in. Uh, if you're a baseball player, you certainly can stay in this country if you came here on a boat from Cuba. Um, and it should be considered in his case as well. Uh, that's not an absolute. That is a complete... Uh, looking at his circumstances rather than the letter of the law. And it will be very curious now to see if this federal government, uh, which in some ways has tried to look at absolutes in the law, is willing to budge on this, as, frankly, they probably should be. I guess it's too bad he spent all that time paying his debt to society and not working on a fastball, so that makes sense. Uh, Mike, uh, is this an issue where you think you're going to see some politicians wanting to get into the fray because it's it's making headlines it's important it's community drama there's a lot of stuff here or is it somewhat of a third rail that politicians don't get anywhere near because it becomes such a quagmire yeah i i think you're going to see politicians trying to dip their toe into immigration policy ways to push back on trump and they're the pretty hard line they've taken on uh, illegal immigrants regardless of whether they you know, uh, our gang members or bringing drugs to this country or whether they are people that were just swept up, brought here by their parents, et cetera. Uh, what's most interesting about this case to me now is state lawmakers are pushing Governor Hickenlooper uh, to pardon uh, him. 
and, and to basically remove the reason that he would be deported. Now, this will be fascinating. You saw what President Obama did uh, in the last two years of his administration, commuting sentences of low-level drug offenders. It'll be interesting to see if Democratic governors or all governors start using pardons as a way to uh, confront the, the Trump administration over deportations. Pat, that's a great point. That's some of, some of the breaking news from here on Friday that Governor Hickelberg is considering this pardon. Do you think he should, and do you think he will? Well, they'd been asking him to pardon him before this whole ICE issue really came up. And as we've seen from Washington, D.C. right now, the fact that you might be pardoned for the crime is not necessarily going to keep you safe if you did not come to this country legally. I mean, we still have that issue. We're seeing the threats across the country. So uh, he is a new lawyer, right? When we're taping this, Hans Meyer is taking over his case, and he's had a lot of success fighting ICE, so we'll see where this goes. But it's an amazing catch-22 that no one saw coming. You know, yesterday everyone was still celebrating the judge's decision when all of a sudden ICE shows up. Michael, there's... I can see a lot of details in the story that on, on really both sides of the coin. Folks are thinking, hey, the uh, you know folks who commit crimes that are here illegally really shouldn't be in the country. But I get the point that he's from Cuba. That's a whole different story. That he came as a one-year-old. So that's he didn't like as Ed said, didn't jump the border. When it shakes out, where do you think some folks are going to come down to, and folks being elected officials as they look at this particular issue? Yeah, I think they're going to come down on both sides of it, and uh, it is a fascinating case. It's like a movie almost between Cuba and, and everything else that's going on, and ICE picking them up afterwards. Um, but I think one thing is, is the the initial sentence of 98 years was excessive, and I think a lot of people would agree with that. Um, second, I, I feel really bad for his family, uh, the ups and downs that his family has to go through, his kids, his wife. Um, but I, I do think that, th that there needs to be a pushback on this narrative of uh, the fact that he is a victim. Uh, he had actually three armed robberies. Um, you have violent crimes where there are real victims in that case. And so I don't think that the governor should be using a pardon to get around immigration law. I think that's an issue that needs to be discussed on the federal level. Uh, why is ICE, you know, involved in, in, you know, in some cases and not in others? You hear a lot of, uh, of law enforcement agencies who are saying, look, we called ICE and they didn't show up, and, but they show up in this case. Uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So I think that's a broader issue, federal issue, that should be, held, should be dealt with, not uh, on a state level. In a unanimous decision, the Jefferson County School Board voted to approve a three-year, $265,000 a year contract for its new superintendent. Jason Glass was selected after a national search and is now Colorado's highest paid superintendent. Meanwhile, the Boulder Valley School Board unanimously voted to fire its superintendent, Bruce Messenger, after a month-long paid leave for, quote, unspecified reasons. Uh, Mike, we have um, two big situations in two of Colorado's big school districts, Jefferson County being uh, really, I think, getting all the headlines. What do you think of their hire and that now he is the top paid superintendent in the state? It's an interesting hire, uh, and it certainly is curious that he's going to be the highest paid superintendent in the state. Uh, what's unfortunate is he was the sole finalist. Uh, we really did not have a public airing over uh, other potential options. Uh, it's not to prejudge what he'll do in Jefferson County, and the pay may, may be necessary, especially given the uh, short tenure of past superintendents and the electoral wins that can blow people off of that top spot. So we'll see. Patty, what do you think of the big uh, hire and the big salary? You know, if it saves all the money we have spent on buying people out of their contracts and legal fees up in Jefferson County, and also the pain of having to have these kinds of controversies in the news all the time, it's probably a good deal for Jefferson County. His resume looks good. He's got great credentials. 
That isn't everything. You know, it'll, it's in how he acts, but so far it seems good. As opposed to Boulder, we really don't know much about what happened to that superintendent. We don't know if he wore leather shoes on vegan day at Boulder <laughs> Public Schools. We don't know what sin he committed, although it's a pretty drastic move. Not unlike some of the drastic moves we've seen in Jefferson County. So I'm sure sooner or later it'll come out. Michael, we're talking about two different, uh, very different school districts that have had a lot of attention and, frankly, a lot of turmoil the last few years. Uh, what do you think of the moves we've seen from both uh, different districts? Well, I think the, the pay is a little bit, uh, it seems pretty high, but I think if you can, can unite uh, Jefferson School District, you're probably worth double that uh, at this point. Uh, I think in Boulder, it is very secretive. I know a lot of this personnel issues go through executive session, and, uh, but it seems like the community's kind of been left without much information. You have people that are holding up signs at the meeting supporting him. I don't know if I'd hold up a sign unless I know what's really going on, but uh, you know, I, I think that they need a, little, a few more answers than that in order to move on. So uh, we'll see. I mean, these things will play out, but they are two big school districts, and they won't you know, be out of the news for very long, uh, if at all. Ed, wrap it up for us. Do we need to know more about the situation on both in both districts? I think especially in Boulder, we do. I mean, it, it, to have this string out and then to leave for unspecified reasons uh, calls more into question the Boulder County or the Boulder Valley School District than it does uh, Bruce Messenger. I mean, you have to ask at this point. I mean, you, you teach children in these classes to ask why, to ask be questions beyond what you're told. Here we're just being told uh, something, and they're almost hoping that we would stop asking questions. I think it's irresponsible responsible that there's not some more uh, openness about that. As far as Jason Glass goes, you know, I, I guess I have less problem with him being the highest paid uh, superintendent in uh, Colorado. This is the second largest school district in, in Colorado, uh, so on a per pupil basis, it's not out of line. Um, I, I think it is important for uh, them now to watch the performance of the school district and see if he is earning this. Um, obviously, this is a, a school district that's had more than your standard uh, types of deviations between uh, between school superintendents before, um, but it's clearly one of the most important in the state because it involves so many children. Uh, so uh, I think he should know that he's under the spotlight at this point and should be expected to produce uh, in commensurate terms with that salary. Hope it came with a flat jacket. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, it starts with Patty Calhoun. Normally I try to keep this local, but and I would almost go with everything going on in Washington, D.C., which seems like Watergate all over again suddenly. But I have to go a little further north, just as I was pulling in, this sad end of a really sad chapter. Anthony Weiner pleading guilty. I mean, how bad can this be? When you look, and he's sorry his public service um, life has come to an end. What example is that for a public service? Yeah, Lifetime Movies thinks that's pathetic. Yeah. Michael. Uh, in 2011, the state legislature created something called the License Plate Auction Group. And basically what it did was it created specialty license plates, and the money was supposed to go to help people with disabilities. Um, the program has been run so bad that it's lost $100,000. Uh, and so this is just an example of uh, you know, how government can have good intentions sometimes, but could have poor results. Ed. I'm going to single out Cecil Kutz. He is a uh, Pennsylvania father who was arrested just yesterday when police came to his home and found unattended his one-year-old, his one-day-old, and his 22-month-old. Now, luckily, he had thought to lock the 22-month-old in a cage inside the house, which is an apt metaphor for where Cecil Kutz will likely be going at this point. Holy smokes. Mike, it's, sometimes Ooh. it's hard to follow things on this show. Yeah, that is. <laughs> now you're shot. Thanks, Ed. 
I'll go with some low-hanging fruit of Frontier Airlines, which we found out this week uh, has not been, according to a lawsuit, has not been providing its flight attendants, flight attendants with facilities to pump breast milk. Uh, this is pretty sad, especially since it's the 21st century. Uh, hopefully some sort of settlement or agreement will come out of this where they can get with the program and with the century and provide those facilities. Perhaps they'll set up those facilities for like a $25 surcharge, something like that. <laughs> Man, that'd be it. Say something nice about somebody, Patty. Well, this studio is in the heart of Five Points, an area that has been going through unbelievably rapid change. And this weekend, you can come out and see, celebrate the incredible history of Five Points at what looks like a very cold Five Point Jazz Festival. That's absolutely right. Michael. Uh, I picked Senator Grantham. He did a funny video uh, about a possible special session uh, with, with Governor Hickenlooper, uh, you know, waiting for his call. And so he got fake calls from Donald Trump, from John Elway, from his mom, uh, still waiting for this, and we, and we still are. So I want to give him some credit for being humorous, uh, you know, while the wait's happening. Ed. Uh, it's a little personal, but as uh, one of the 27 authors who's a finalist for the Colorado Book Awards this year, I want to actually give a shout-out and say something that's about the other 26, especially as we've had chances to interact at events, and I still see the passion in writing, a skill that seems to be undermined by society these days, and the passion for, for trying to get people to think more differently. To everyone who's a finalist nominee, congrats. You've earned it. Here, well, congratulations to you as well. Mike. Here's hoping... Uh, uh, you might not get it, and, and you'll be driv driven to drinking and writing yet another great book about beer. So uh, I'm going to go with Aurora Public Schools, uh, whose board voted this week uh, to uh, not provide students immigration information to authorities. It's the right call, especially given uh, the issues we've discussed as well as what's going on in the country. That is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. I'd like to congratulate my colleagues here at Colorado Public Television for securing several Heartland Emmy nominations this week. We were able to secure things in cultural documentary. We have a nomination interstitial. Uh, we have one in program promo image. And, of course, we have our own audio engineer, Larry Patchett, who is up against some stiff competition being himself in another show that he's done. So it sounds on 29th, his audio work and his work on the loft sessions out at Denver Channel 8. As always, be sure to check out our podcast on iTunes and for our CIO postgame segment on Twitter and Facebook. For everyone here at Channel 12, Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.